1: Meeting
2: is being recorded. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. I'm Will Mellar, delighted to be joined by Barry Dillon. Great to have you on the show, Barry. Lovely to
1: be here, Will. Thanks for having me on.
2: So uh, Barrow uh, is a, a qualified solicitor um, practicing in Solihull um, and uh, is, is a successful property investor. He uh, has a, a growing portfolio of um, mainly, um, West Midland and, 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 surrounding districts, uh, properties. And we're going to be talking about her, um, her background and how she got into property and, and what she's up to at the moment. Um, we met through the partners and property, uh, network, um, is a, a member of the, uh, Birmingham branch. Um, and she, she regularly comes down to, to London as well. So Barrow, um, what, what you might uh, do is just give the, the listeners a, a quick flavour of uh, what you're up to, the, the, the one-minute version um, at, at the moment, both professionally and uh, property-wise, and then we'll, we'll get started.
1: Okay, I'm a consultant solicitor in the private client field, we call it as a heading, which covers um, probate wills, lasting powers of attorney and trusts for the individual person. Um, So I'll work on a consultancy basis through an umbrella firm. So all of the professional indemnity cover and things like that are covered by the firm and you do the work under that umbrella. Um, I can also work on a support basis for other firms as well if they've got gap cover that they need to cover. Um, And I can do that remotely or on site with the said firms. And um, obviously, there's also the property investment side, which has been something that's bubbling along since probably our late 20s that we sort of started to get into it it's been a slow sort of thing that we've been doing on the side for me it was more about having something as a pension because I didn't then believe in paying into pensions because I just you know you'd heard stories at the time about pension pots being um used you know fraudulently and badly handled so I just never seemed to trust them at the time so that was my angle for going into property and looking at having some other sort of asset base put your money into, really, that can grow.
2: Fantastic. And uh, in terms of um, general overview of the the current portfolio, what's the the quick summary?
1: Okay, I suppose it's a mixture of uh, single let and serviced accommodation, and the serviced accommodation elements come in in the last sort of two to three years as a pivot um, that we've carried out, knowing what is happening in the market with the Section 24s and what have you um for the buy-to-let market.
2: Very good. And and so um what what's the uh childhood uh story? So if you what what were you doing age four? Were you planning on being a, a consultant, a solicitor and, and, and private client?
1: No, I don't think at the age of four I was. Um I was out on the streets eating dirt probably <laughs> <laughs> in the good old days of playing out on the streets and stuff. Probably not at that age of the age of four but older probably. Um, but no, where, I think where,
2: where, where did you grow up, and um, what what was uh, what was going on at home?
1: Stoke-on-Trent was my um, town where I um, was born and grew up, and I was uh, number five of six kids, so I was the fifth girl, and then um, my brother was the sixth. So um, in that um, era, he,
2: he was blessed amongst women.
1: That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah. So. Yeah, large family, nice, um, you know, upbringing. I think, you know, you just sort of left to carry on with it, really. You know, mum didn't have enough time to sort of pander to all of us. We just sort of had to crack on. And obviously having older siblings, they're always there to support me mum as well, I suppose.
2: And, and uh, that, that must be um, like a, a great start, having all these older siblings uh, around to sort of look out for you and, and play with you and, and get, get you ready for school and things.
1: Yeah, I think obviously it's also, you get a lot of hand-me-downs as well, so you don't always have new stuff. So you just have what's um, being passed down that they've outgrown as well in terms of clothes and what have you. So um, having something new in terms of an outfit was always a little surprise and excitement, you know, if there's a, a wedding or something, you know, because you had older sisters who got married first. So that was a little time where you got some things made specially for you.
2: And what, what, was, uh, what were you like as a primary school kid? What, what was going on?
1: I think um, my reports used to basically say I was a good all-rounder. That used to be a common uh, thing that used to be in the reports, you know, mixed well with the um, the class and, you know, just sort of put my hand to everything, really. So I used to be quite active with the sports side of things and um, the creative side, the music, the drama, the choirs. I was actually in a church choir at one point, even though we are brought up as Sikh, I actually took myself to the church choir as a became- <laughs> became one of those um, kids that was singing in the choir, the little brown girl in the choir. And um, some of the other old elder choir personnel were saying, oh, you know, you've got a lovely voice. They used to say that to me, but then we moved house away from that uh, school because it was a a Christian school. I went to actually Church of England, so they had a church attached to it. So any sort Uh of play or anything like that that would come up around Christmas, I'd always get involved and be a part of that. And the the church used to feature quite a lot in the school activities as well. So and I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, on to a secondary school?
1: Yeah, so secondary school, yeah, I went off to there and, um, in Penkel, in Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle Way. Um, again, went through that, but then we ended up having to move because my dad um, bought a shop in Derbyshire. So we moved over to Ripley in Derbyshire. So I had to take my subjects again in year three, third year, what we would call it then which I think is year I think nine. So I had to change all the topics I'd actually chosen. So I was doing, at that time, I was doing external sort of exams in addition to my exams, you know, the drama and the music theme.
2: Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. I would have
1: gone down that route more if I hadn't changed schools. Mm-hmm.
2: Which is- but that, but that's interesting. So you, you're uh, obviously interested in all sorts of things. Uh, and anyone who, who's had a chat with you uh, would, would gather that you're you're quite a curious person. What what's your um, what was your plan sort of uh, heading out of secondary school? What what was uh, was there a plan uh, and and what what did you end up doing?
1: Well, when I was in senior school in Stoke, because my um, focus was on the drama and the music side, my thoughts were to go and you know I used to love Paula Abdul and seeing her and her dance team and her entourage and all that. So I used to dream of doing stuff like that, actually dancing on stage or being on stage. Um, and I did do a my own choreographed dance as well to She's Like the Wind by Patrick Swayze. And Dirty Dancing was a one of my favourite all-time films at the time. And that was one of the leaving gifts that they gave me when I left that school, actually. Um, so then it all changed because the topics changed. And the subjects had to change, except for drama. I carried on with drama. Um, so when I left school in Derbyshire, it was in there that I sort of took myself in the little careers hub and was looking through the books of careers that you can do and things like, Probation officer and uh, barrister and lawyer sort of came up as potential, and social worker was one actually that I quite like the sound of. Um, and,
2: and what was the appeal about uh, these?
1: I think helping people, the idea that you're helping people out who can't help themselves. I suppose that was a the focus there, being of help to others.
2: Right, well, uh, and uh, that, that's quite a, a mature sort of attitude for a teenager as well. So uh, recognising what you're about and what's important to you.
1: Yeah, I think at the time, because um, when we were in this shop, there was a neighbouring shop, and this actually brings a property thing into it, but I wasn't looking at it at the time. And he was meant to be a news agent. So my dad was a general um, you know, off-licence, general store. And obviously with these shops, when they were set up, they had restrictive covenants in them that you can only do this type of uh, business, you can only do this type of business, so they didn't sort of compete. And the guy next door in the news day, he started to sell stuff, which is groceries. So, starting to affect my dad's business. So, I remember at the time, I was probably about 15 or 16 when it was going on. And I remember him having a court case about trying to get this to be stopped. Um, and I just found that time, you know, it was quite a stressful time for him. And he was, and I don't know whether the, the lawyers weren't very good at the time, but I don't think it worked out for him for whatever reason. I didn't know the detail. But I just thought that, you know, it was very unjust how that had happened, how someone just decided to you know, flout the laws and decide to do what they want in terms of selling something else that they shouldn't have been doing. Some might see it as being, you know, being proactive in a, a market that's competitive. But um, I think, yeah, that's probably something as well about going into the law and helping people out and trying to put things right where people need.
2: And, and Lee, um, I, I think it's quite a, a interesting area property-wise because you, um, you know, what, what the uh, barriers to entry are uh, uh, as part of the value um, of, of what, what you're owning. And, and, and that can be uh, either something that's in the lease agreements or it could be something that's um, given to you uh, by the local authority or indeed uh, government-led legislation that affects the, the property and what you can do with it and, and, and therefore what the value of it is. Because land has no inherent value generally unless you're a farmer. Yeah. Um, it's what you put on the land and what you can put on the land and what you yeah. can do with that that um, uh, that, that building uh, that, that you've put on there. And um, the, the law has such a big part of that and your, your ability to create value in, uh, in any any businesses is, is largely uh, to do with what the um, I, I suppose the, the legal, Uh, opportunities that open up. And one of the the, the things that fascinates me uh, about uh, Microsoft Corporation is, um, as an example Mm -hmm. uh, is that uh, Bill Gates, his father, was a licensing lawyer. Um, And uh, if you look at what is the value of Microsoft revolve around, it's the contractual value of the software. People people think of them as, you know, as a software company primarily, but yeah. they're actually an intellectual property company.
1: Yeah, he is big on that, isn't he? Patents and what have you.
2: Um, now, so um, go, going back to um, making the decision, so you, you, you're you looking at uh, social work, probation officer, barrister, solicitor. Uh, you're, you started to get um, a, a little bit uh, motivated based on uh, based on your your father's experience with the the, the covenant and, and the, the court case around it, um, what what made uh, what, what what was the you know what what swayed it one way or another?
1: Well, after the uh, school, I went to dar- a college in Derby and studied A level law, sociology, and psychology. And we had an amazing lecturer in law. He's he's great, Clive Topley, um, and he was just you know this. Um, red-haired, really tight, curly-haired, stringy guy, really tall and really into his um, cycling, and he'd actually lecture in, like, his um, his legging type of trousers, what he'd do is his um, cycling, and then just, like, you know, a t-shirt, but he was so funny and so engaging in the way he taught the law. He just made it really interesting, and um, law was one of the ones that got the A in, and I really enjoyed it, so I think that was my sort of cementing of, I'd like to go Into law after doing the A-levels I think after that so yeah studied Um, and then applied for LLB in Leicester at the Mumford Uni to do the LLB law and um, really enjoyed that as well during that three years and then obviously I was in that flow then of like right I want to now focus on going down that route of securing a training contract to then be able to train to then qualify but they weren't easy to come and they still aren't you know very difficult to get hold of So obviously after law degree, I didn't make hundreds of applications like some people do for training contracts. I then went into work with a bank for a short while, for about 18 months, um, because I was finding it so tough to try and just get into the legal world. But then a paralegal role came about in um, Birmingham. So I went and did that initially to get my foot in the door. And um, that turned into a training contract itself. That was a sole practitioner firm. So then another role came up with the firm that I ended up training with in the end. Um, and that was a firm in Solihull. And um, I w- would have meant me leaving the training contract, which would have guaranteed me to qualify, going back into a paralegal role, and then trying my um, look luck at basically getting a training contract with them. So I did that. So I stepped away from that training contract, went to work because it was a bigger firm. I saw more opportunity, they were covered a larger area of work. Well, the firm I was with, was purely personal injury, matrimonial, and
2: conveyancing. This firm did the board And, and I, I think that's um, that's a fantastic sort of um, route to it because um, anyone who uh, has worked as a paralegal before going into a training contract, uh, in general, they've got a, a much stronger administrative discipline. They understand. Uh, you know, the, the importance of managing documentation as opposed to just uh, the actual drafting process and uh, yeah. the intellectualizing of, of, of the matter they're handling. Um, and I, I think it should be compulsory for, for solicitors personally because uh, a lot of the time delays in, uh, in, in conveyancing, for example, come down to solicitors not being on top of the documentation themselves Uh, They very rarely would admit this, but um, in my experience, like uh, solicitors that have worked as paralegals or in in, uh, law clerking type roles before Mm. uh, actually qualifying or or going into a training contract do much better because they're organised.
1: Yeah, this is it. I mean, then it was totally different as well. Now you've got more technology that can help you with some firms who are more ahead on technology basis. And, you know, I think... At that time, it's sort of, I think email was a new thing. I think back then, when um, in sort of the late nineties, when the email came about, didn't it?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That in
1: itself was a big. Um, oh my gosh! You don't have to do everything by paper.
2: And and uh, what what else happened um, with the move down to Birmingham?
1: Um, well, the Birmingham came about um, because after my three years in Leicester, I decided to do the postgraduate in Birmingham. It was the same course being run by De Montfort, but at University of Birmingham. And um, I thought we'd have a change now, just go over there. And one of my friends who was on the course, she was living in Leicester and she was like, well, I fancy going to Birmingham. I want to live out now. So I thought, OK, then I'll go along to Birmingham. It's a bigger city. Let's just see what's going on there. And so and obviously the University of Birmingham's a lovely campus as well. Um, and then mm-hmm. did the postgraduate there, which is obviously the, the precursor to getting your training contract. And it was obviously after being in Birmingham that I did get that role ultimately to qualify with the firm, which was actually in Bristol. So that took us to Bristol after. So um, Cam was dragged down to Bristol to leave his job here. and to Cam, come
2: Cam, Cam, being your your husband, um, how did you guys meet? And, um, and you, you obviously fast forward, you're happily married for a number of years and... Um, and partners and property uh, as well?
1: Yeah. Um, we were introduced through family, actually. So um, my dad, obviously, having these five daughters, was very keen to make sure that he was going to see them on their merry way and uh, be betrothed at some point. So some of the older sisters have probably had some more of a more strict arranged marriage. This was more looser when it came to myself. It was more of an introduction. i would made it clear to my parents that I'm not going to be sort of um, pressured into anything. It's going to be my choice. So it was quite a a relaxed um, meeting initially. You know, families were there and chatting away and we went and chatted separately. And then we had a subsequent meeting and then meetings on our own. And then, um, yeah, we have the support of the family already, I suppose, in these situations. You've already got a meeting of the minds of the family. And then Mm -hmm. um, it's whether you two, you know, make a match for each other or not.
2: Mm -hmm. And and it's clear you've hit it off anyway. So... uh... Uh, so, how far into it are you now?
1: Well, it was nineteen ninety nine. We got married, actually. Yes, yeah. so it's um, that we're coming up to um, tw- twenty four years in October.
2: Oh, well, fantastic! Uh, yeah. Something to look forward to. So, um, at, at what point was property starting to enter the um, your, your mind uh, as a um, as a trainee? Like, like we, uh, like, what were your ambitions?
1: Yeah, well, obviously, that move and making the move down to Bristol, in hindsight, I think we should have. We were thinking about, oh, can we keep our property in Birmingham and then rent that out and then move to Bristol? I think we weren't clued up or anything then. Um, We we didn't realise we could have refinanced out of our house at the time, used that towards a deposit. We were thinking, oh, you know, how much can we afford without doing that? And it just meant that, you know, we're going to get a small flat in Bristol if we kept that property. So we didn't explore it properly, really, at the time. So we didn't, so we moved, we went to new bill, part exchange, you know, the market was moving quick then, so we'd already made a a good growth on the property that we'd held for like 18 months at that point, you know, it was 2001 to, to, yeah, 1999 to 2001 when it was going a bit crazy. Um, So property came into the mix, I think, when it was like, you know, you start to look at what you're paying into pension, um, and then I'd read uh, Robert Kiyosaki's book as well, And also, my dad had also been in property himself. So after he'd bought that shop that I mentioned earlier, Uh he initially started out in the 70s buying properties with his brothers, but then they sort of split away from that and then they all went into their sort of factory roles again. But then he reverted back to that after the shop ended up failing eventually. We had a big Sainsbury's that opened up not far off. Again, being wary again, if you're buying anything property-wise, especially a business, and it's... You want to see what's in the planning of any future developments coming around your area because uh-huh. that can mess, you know, that business up. So I think that's what happened there. And the people who probably sold the business to him knew that was coming in the future. Um uh-huh. so he then went back to Stoke, but he held on to his property and then he started to buy property again, and that started to be, become his income again. And I'd seen for him, you know, when he used to talk about property, that property was, you know, something if you just buy and even just hold it for the term. You know, you're gonna end up with a, a decent asset and it's always paying you. Mm-hmm.
2: So, and it was um and it was mainly commercial or, or residential stuff he was doing?
1: Um his was residential actually. So the only commercial one was that shop um that he bought in Derbyshire, but then it was residential that he went back to. Um and he had properties in some student areas as well, as well as you know, just your family lets. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. But um and that was all just fumbling along and doing it himself and we had bought property the first property we bought we actually refinanced on our own house in bristol and bought it out cash it was like 60 grand at the time three bed mm-hmm. we thought easy let's just get that in there and do it and then obviously mm-hmm. um a couple of years later we used we refinanced that to get money out to basically buy other properties and then them days you could put down 15 percent as a deposit um and then just, you know, straight on to let. Even though some of the rates at the time, actually, then were about 5%, you know. I know everyone's crying about the rates now, but, you know, the initial rates back then were 5-something. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's, uh, there's obviously been some changes in between, but you you continued to uh, work professionally and um, part-time in property. You started uh, getting involved in property networks and uh, I, I suppose uh, looking at alternate strategies to, to buy to let. Talk us through uh, w- when you started to investigate that.
1: You know what? It was quite late in the day, actually. It was around 2017. I, I looked at um, coming into the property networking and partners in property, seeing Sue Sims on her social media. Um, obviously I was working in a full-time role then so it was difficult to get to some of the meetings um, mm-hmm. but then I managed to get into a situation where I could have the day off to basically do those networking meetings and that's when I started to get involved in that and some of the sort of educational you know property investors networks. Simon Zucci's courses I did a couple of them as well and it's just um, meeting like-minded people it's like a whole new world to me it's like you know, we've been doing this thing, bumbling along and just speaking to people who we might know who, who do rent out properties. And then there's this whole world that's been going on since what I understand is about 2011 onwards. I think the networking mm-hmm. in the Midlands, mm-hmm. I think, was a thing in Birmingham. And I was like, where has this been all my life? Where have I, you know, been looking? Don't know.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and what, what were some of the um, breakthroughs you, you made conceptually uh, through people you met?
1: I think just hearing what everyone else was doing, and it's just, you know, more than just the buy to let. And that's where I think the service accommodation thing idea came about. Initially looking at HMOs, we were um, pre Article 4 in Birmingham. But then the market was going crazy here about three years ago, before lockdown, 2019, 18. Every man and his dog was coming into Birmingham to buy, especially from the south. Um, About 30 people viewing properties are going over asking. And you know, so you still gotta then pay about 60, 70 grand on converting, you know, the HMO to a five or six bed. So it just seemed a bit too hectic. So then we went mm-hmm. back and um, bought a, a small, por- smaller portfolio of about four then properties of, of the single lets again in mm-hmm. uh, Stoke-on-Trent. Just thinking that, again, it was thinking that you've got a few more properties rather than the one putting your eggs in one basket of a more expensive property Mm-hmm. Um, yes you're probably going to get more capital appreciation in birmingham but then there's just that idea of having those several eggs in a basket rather than just the one larger one mm-hmm. That's,
2: mm-hmm. That's, and, really and sure. what was the um appeal about the serviced accommodation and and how did you go about uh getting your first one underway
1: well we've always used um airbnb and what have you when we've rather than hotels when we've gone, you know, just even in England, seeing friends or going for a wedding somewhere and staying over and even going abroad on holiday as well. I'd, I'd normally go for the separate booking of a Airbnb type of setup and then hiring a car and then exploring the area. So um, that idea appealed and also because of the knowledge I've gained in these networking groups and some shorter form bootcamp um, trainings about the um, taxation, um, you know, situation being better in a service accommodation setup, you know it's exempt from the section 24 and um, you mm-hmm. can offset more expenses and what have you against your uh, costs which was something that's now being reduced for you know mainstream buy to let um so that was appealing and the fact that um we had a one, one property where the guy had stopped we were having to managed at the time agents weren't great we hadn't realized he'd left we'd found out through a neighbor when we were just checking on uh, the properties where we found out we had left and stopped paying rent for three months. Um, agents hadn't even gone to check it, was still in the house or what have you, but the neighbours told us he'd moved out. But the place had just left a bit messy and trashed. And then the neighbours had said, you know, used to be up all hours and doing drugs and what have you. So we just thought, actually, we're going to refurb this property now. So being able to maintain your property through service accommodation is one of the added benefits, I think. You, you got regular contact with your asset um, and then taking back that control again, I think, and preserving it after you have refurbed it to stay in the same condition. Because I know we all take deposits and what have you, but sometimes them deposits might not even cover the work that you have to do, you know, if they don't treat the place as well. Um, but yeah, that could come down to having proper managing agents looking after it, or you're looking after it in a more personal mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in terms of how it came about, we did the refurb, spoke to the lenders at the time, just explained to them what we were going to do and they were saying they were fine with that um, going ahead we didn't need to enter into a new product with that particular lender so that was a, an added bonus so we thought we'll try it out for three months this was 2020 end of 2020 by the way where we were in lockdown so um, after the refurb we listed it on airbnb and um, the algorithm at that time used to push new listings and it would give them out a bit cheaper you know just to get interest and we did we get some got some bookings over that Christmas, you know, people staying over and see family and what have you, but then we had to cancel them because I think we had a lockdown again that came in again.
2: But mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
1: we knew that actually the listings actually worked. But then when it was released again, you could actually offer it to contractors and stuff, so we did, and it seemed to, to work quite well. So um, And,
2: and having, uh, having that support of uh, um, a, a couple of networks uh, of people who were out there doing this previously, um did that give you a bit of a comfort factor
1: oh definitely You're speaking to people who are already doing it you get some ideas off them you do your own research as well um and you can only really understand it when you do it yourself with anything i think you know you can do all the reading in the world until you've actually done it physically practically and we were doing everything ourselves first we actually cleaned it we cleaned all the linen and everything washing that drying it And gosh, that was a, you know, traveling up and down the M6 to get that done, just to see what was involved before we outsourced it. So we could see how long it is actually taking. So then we switched from purchase linen to hiring it out with the cleaner that we got. So we had one cleaner first, didn't work out too well with them, but then managed to source again through a contact, through a PIP network contact, another cleaner who helped us out with that contact. So, you know, these contacts come in really handy just having those conversations.
2: And what would be the three tips you'd give to someone um, who hasn't done service accommodation before and they're looking to get into it?
1: Um, I'd say know your area, which I did in this situation anyway. I could see that, um, you know, check local hotels in terms of car parks, what sort of vehicles are there. There are lots of vans if you're looking for contractors. Um, The area we've got also has some leisure, but it just tends to be that more contractors tend to book. So I think find an area that has a bit of both, you know, ability for contractors to be there and leisure. So it's year round, hopefully. Um, and then getting a very good cleaner is key for your service accommodation, because without your cleaner cleaning being on top, you're going to get, you know, not good reviews. So you don't want to have that because your reviews boost you on the platforms. Um, and now we have actually passed hours over to um, some managing agents to look after because we didn't want to have that distraction because we are looking at other stuff going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think using your networks again, we've used a network for that um, agent to hand over the properties to, to handle Mm -hmm. it. And
2: and, uh, in terms of looking, looking at what, what's going on out there, we were, we were talking, um, before we, we started recording about, um, the state of the market and, um, and how, um, what, what was working a couple of years ago, but perhaps isn't the, the way to go about it. What what What's the outlook and what are the other options you're assessing?
1: Um, well, I think before my views on HMOs were that, you know, they're too much of a headache, but I think they were gonna be quite, work quite well going forward. It isn't something we've dealt with ourselves. Um, I think you've just got to be a bit more creative now as a landlord. If you have got single buy to lets, seeing how you can sweat that asset more. And that's one of the points that was raised to me at one of my first pit meetings, actually, it was Fiona Tolbert and she was on the panel at the time. And she said, look what you you can sweat your existing assets before you buy further properties, um, which I think you need to look at in this type of market. And, um, you know, if it's not working, then you maybe need to look at thinking if it needs to be sold. If it's not a property that's going to work in any other pivoting situation, to mm-hmm. be able to mm-hmm. look at selling it and maybe put it into something that can work better.
2: in mm-hmm. um, terms of the uh, options so you're looking at, HMOs, uh, other other categories that you're assessing at the moment.
1: Um, I'm sort of keeping an eye out at commercial properties because. Um, with the service accommodation thing, I think it would be useful to be able to convert an existing commercial property into residential. You haven't got as many people looking at that as you have in terms of a normal residential market. You know, you're know, you then competing with people who are looking to buy the house themselves as well as investors, whereas commercial property, you're probably just up against investors um, and not the, the general market who's looking for property. So I think commercial property is one to look out for in this type of market now where office spaces are being kept empty and, you know, not being filled by some businesses as they were before.
2: Mm-hmm. And so um, any, any bits of advice that you you could give, like you're, um, you're a superwoman in some, some ways you're, uh, you're uh, you've got a busy family life. You've got a, um, your own professional career, you're, uh, running a property portfolio, which you're expanding, lots of lots of things on on the go. You're a social butterfly. You're involved in property networks. Um, what, um, what what's your advice to people uh, if, if it's feeling like uh, there's just too much on in in, um, in a given moment? I
1: think sometimes it's just you do have to just go quiet in you know yourself and um, probably slow down on going out so often you know just whether it's networking meetings you know just having a breather from everything to regroup um i think meditation always helps as well i think doing some meditation um because it can become a bit noisy there's a lot of noise sometimes isn't there
2: and what what sort of meditation do you do
1: i like the um the guided meditation i follow youtube quite a lot because i find a lot of the informative stuff on youtube So I'll be the guided meditation where, you know, they might be on a video format and then just absorbing, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, nothing too lengthy or just those that you put on the headphones um, and listening to it. You know, um, any type of meditation, if you just put it in as a search um, engine, you know, word and then just something that resonates with you in terms of the voice and the tone and what's being said in terms Mm. of positive affirmations and just clearing your mind.
2: Fantastic. And um, in terms of um, how how often um, would you do that uh, typically, like if you looked at the last month or so?
1: Um, If I'm not always doing it quietly sitting, I'll always have it on in the background if I'm getting ready in the morning. So at least I'm hearing it if I'm not sitting down and properly clear-minding myself. Um, But yeah, I'd probably say about five times out of the week probably doing it in that quiet zone situation but every day otherwise it's on in the background in the morning Mm
0: -hmm. then even Mm -hmm.
1: at night if you're feeling a bit anxious you can't clear your head i'd just suggest write out anything that's on your mind so it's dumped out of your head and then just listening to some sleep meditation just to quiet your mind Mm -hmm.
2: well fantastic um so uh really appreciate you coming on Barrow. Um, so if you'd like to look Barrow up, um, you're able to connect with her uh, on LinkedIn, or um, or you, you might meet her at one of the Partners and Property Networking meetings around the country. Uh, you're pr- probably uh, most commonly at the Birmingham uh, chapter or branch. Um, yeah. So uh, what, what day of the month do they run?
1: They're always the first Friday of the month, which is an easy one to remember, but except for next month, I think it's on a Wednesday, because we've got the Easter holidays and the Good Friday on the 6th, so it's on the 3rd of April.
2: Okay, but uh, otherwise the, uh, the, the first Friday of the month. That's so, right. Uh, that's fantastic. So, uh, Barry Dillon, great to have you on. I'm Will Mallard, this is my property. Well, thank you.
0: Thank you, thanks for having me.